and welcome, welcome to episode welcome. 297 of the Filmmakers Podcast. <laughs> this is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to royally F them up. In our very, very humble opinion, I am Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director and producer. I am Dom Lenoir and also those things. I could have said anything. Yeah, I could have literally said I'm a sheep herder. I'm a giraffe and I love shoveling coal. Who's to say I'm not a sheep herder or a giraffe? Who's to say? Well, today's guests are an interesting one because the last couple of weeks has been the Giles Alderson show where we've talked about Giles Alderson movies <laughs> and I've talked about Giles Alderson in the third person as I'm doing right now. Uh, and on this week's show, we have Dom Lamar as a third person because the other two people are um, Octavia Gilmore, the star and one of the producers. And we have the director, writer and producer Connor Borrow of the feature film, When the Screaming Starts. Of which, Dom Lenoir, you are also a producer. I am. Great. (laughs) (laughs) How to kill an intro. (laughs) (laughs) So the 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 precursor to this intro is, I mean, you will hear about it on the episode, but the most exciting thing right now for for me is that Giles is encompassed Mm. in a blankie. I am. I, I use the word blankie to to add an extra edge to it because blanket just just didn't quite cut the mustard. I mean, you said blanket far too quickly for a man of your age wearing a, a wife beater right now, which you are. I, I don't need a blankie. I'm not in a blankie, Jar. So I'm just going to throw it out there. No. Also, for for the audience, I'm going to point out that the the episode was recorded before the intro, and Giles was the first instigator of the word blankie. You can keep an ear <laughs> out to the episode if you want to find out that nugget. It's true. Uh, but yes, so so Giles is basically. E.T. right now when he did his uh, sink clap at the start the the blanket or blankie blankie. uh, encompassed his entire being uh, (laughs) and I was faced with a blanket (laughs) which is very exciting So, um, so that's that. I mean, I mean, the other the other thing that's uh, that's uh, that's quite exciting is that we've we've had a conversation about about funny levels because <laughs> apparently, yes. according to Giles, I wasn't funny enough on, on, <laughs> on the promotion of a film that I'm involved in. that you were involved in. Yeah, I'd say that was true, and I'm glad you brought that up uh, live on the podcast yes. intro. No, but in all seriousness, you know, you were talking about the film in, in serious manners. It's just you are a very funny man, Dom Lemoire. I know. I know, but I mean, you know, first of all, like, there's a lot of pressure being being funny all the time. Like, I, you know, I, I do it because you know it's just, just it's just a lot it's just of pressure <laughs> being funny all the time. Who are you, Jimmy Carr? <laughs> there's times when you kind of you kind of want to be funny, and there's other times where you sort of have to adapt a little bit to the mood. I don't know why you think about these levels of funny, Dom. I think everyone who's listened to this podcast knows your level of funny, and I, I don't think you need to sort of squish or squash your own funniness. I don't think anyone's ever asked you to do that. No. If anything, I think they've probably asked you to maybe up it a little bit. I don't think anyone's ever asked that, Charles. On a date, perhaps? Well, uh, no, 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 no. No, they just left. Yeah. No, that, that might be you, but uh, hey. just you and your blanket. <laughs> just me and my blankie. Me and my blankie. Yes. Having a lovely time. I'm in a hotel room in Italy still, and this is where we're recording this week's intro from. 
That's why I'm under a blankie. In case mm. anyone was questioning my methods or motives. It's, I'm only under the blankie so that it sounds better for you. Because this is what it sounds like out of the blanket. This is what it sounds like, boys and girls. This is the echo nurse. That's that's a reverb. He, he, he's just It's just an, an emotional support <laughs> just an, animal for him. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, on this week's show, we talk with Conor Burrow and Octavia Gilmore all about their film, When the Screaming Starts, which is also Dom's film as well. Uh, what did we dive into? What did we talk about, Dom Lamar? So we talked about making your first feature for Connor and some of the team, putting together a core team that you can rely on to, to get something made that's achievable. Very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and shooting sequentially over over three different shoot periods uh, around lockdown and how that benefits. I, I love that and what benefits you took from that and how that helped Connor create the film that he wanted to create, but also how they talked about comedy and, and getting that across and a mockumentary and the differences between, you know, something like The Office, but also money. We talked a lot about how you can fund a movie like this, how you do it, a proper independent film, and how you manage to raise whatever money you can raise to go out there and do it. And I think that is really interesting. So loads to learn on this week's episode and a brilliant chat with two brilliant people. Notice I said two there, Dom? I did, I did. Yeah, good. I've got to shout out Q scripts. Um, Everyone's queuing up for that. <laughs> Dom is back. Is that, is that good enough? Dom is back, you made me smile. <laughs> Basically, Q scripts is an online platform where you as a screenwriter can go and get your scripts evaluated. They have monthly webinars, which I did one recently. We might even be putting it out as a podcast. They have lots of other, even more talented writers than me, producers and directors. There's also a discount on all services offered by Q scripts at the moment. And you get access to a 36 page quarterly industry magazine, which is brimming with useful context, industry insights and interviews with screenwriters. So if you're a screenwriter, get involved. Q scripts. There will be a lovely little advert in the middle of this podcast. So I hope you enjoy that. Q scripts.com. <laughs> that was nice. Yeah. Patreon at the moment, we've got so many bonus clips, bonus bits and pieces from the episodes. Almost too many. Stuff that we, yeah, in fact, there probably is, but it's like a couple of quid. So come and join us. Come and join the, the wonderful people who are on our Patreon at the moment, listening to some really cool extras and insights. Uh, and that is patreon.com forward slash the filmmakers podcast. I do have to give a shout out to last week's episode, Kristen Baker. She talked all about distribution and setting up your own streaming platform and doing it under a niche genre as well and how you can do that and also make indie films and be a fantastic director and writer and producer as Kristen is. And there's a dozen reasons why you should listen to that. There is. What, what are they? Well, because she's a baker. Oh, oh go. that's we go. good. Yeah, nice. Welcome. Welcome back, Dom. So have you watched The Stranger in Our Bed yet, Dom? I mean, yes. I mean, I felt like this is a slightly <laughs> rhetorical question as you sat next to me for said viewing. Mm. Uh, but yes, yes, what a great film. <laughs> Oh, oh God, so glad you said it. Uh, anyway, The Stranger in a Bed is out now. Uh, thank you for all your love and support on that movie. Uh, as is Wolves of War, I do have to plug them both because, pff, you know, it's my podcast. Links to those are in the show notes. If you want to support, then do. If you don't, whatever, I don't mind. Um, just know that you're getting this for free. Know that you, you know, we're spending our time doing this, our hard fought time, our livelihoods are at stake. Just those kind of things. Don't worry about it. It's fine. No pressure. None at all. And if you don't give it a great review on iTunes or Apple, then 
we're no longer friends. And the blankie's going to come and get you. The blankie will be thrown off and then you'll get podcasts like this all the time. This is what will happen, right? Do you want this? Do you want this in your life? No, right? I'm going to put it back on now because you do need to watch. <laughs> you do need to watch The Stranger in Our Bed and Walls of War. They are out now. There you go. I think I put it on too thick. Most of all, you need to watch When the Screaming Stops. <laughs> You do, which is out now, which is a perfect segue into this week's episode. We do have the fantastic Connor Burrow, the wonderful Octavia Gilmore, and the ever so delightful Dom Lenoir. What should they do, Dom? I mean, listen to the episode. Here it is. Enjoy. Hello. Hello. Hello, guys. Hi. How echoey does it sound? Does it sound really echoey? It's like a six out of ten, maybe. Yeah, I could put I could put the duvet over my head. I think you should for video purposes. Yeah, just for the video purposes. Just right. for the video purposes. Right, that's better now, isn't it? You can hear me. Isn't it weird how it totally works? I mean, it makes sense, but you know, is it? Looks quite snug in there. It looks quite. It, to cozy. be honest, I'm getting quite warm. <laughs> is this to get the perfect? Filmmakers podcast audio. Yeah, this is the only way. This room, our hotel room I'm in, is very, very echoey. But anyway, you will be talking about this film forever. It, that's just part of it now, forever. It's your legacy and it's something incredible you've created. And no matter what anyone says or anyone puts it down or gives it the best review in the world, it's always yours and it'll never go away. And that's an incredible thing for anyone to make a film and the fact that you've done this and it's a brilliant film and getting some amazing reviews as it deserves. I think just generally we should all just take that little moment sometimes to go, Jesus, we, we've actually done that. We've achieved what we wanted to achieve, especially being your first film, Connor, you know, as a debut director and, you know, to do that is huge. It is. And we, we do need to take a moment. So let's just take a moment. Okay, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, just think, I'm just thinking about the, the E.T. sequel. Like The E.T. sequel? Who's done that? Starring Giles. Oh, right. <laughs> but for, for anyone at home, Giles is a, he's under a duvet, very much look, like looking like E.T. Um, <laughs> like a younger E.T., should we say? A younger? No? Uh, <laughs> well, it's more of a blankie than a, um, a duvet. But, but yes, Connor Burroughs' film um, starring Octavia Gilmore, produced by Dom Lenoir, When the Screaming Starts, is out now in the UK. So do go support. And it came out in the US last week. Uh, and we're recording this before it comes out in the UK. So it's kind of a bit Time wonderful and strange. And the build up to it. Let's talk about the build up of making any film. How's it feel for the three of you right now? I know we talked about that sort of anticipation when it comes out and that sort of, oh, it's out. What about the build up? How are you feeling? How are you coping with that whole oh my god my film's coming out and talking about it and you know how do you put it out on socials uh let's start with you connor it's such a long road and i don't think i quite realized that coming into it you know on first feature it's been about three years this beast has been in our lives you know and dominated vast parts of it so it's it's strange it's seemingly never ending or mm -hmm. at least until this point and now it's getting to that stage where 
wow, is this, is this really it? It's out there now. We don't have to do anything else or not much else. Just, you know, a little jumping on the odd podcast, bit of promotion. So the odd podcast. The odd, oh, well, not this one, Giles. I mean, this is, um, what? This, is uh, this isn't work for me, Giles. I'm a huge fan of this podcast. I've been listening, I think since nearly day one, about five years. So this is actually quite a surreal moment for me to come on the filmmakers podcast. Definitely my most played podcast. So oh, that's cool. Does Giles, having a duvet over his head make the experience all the more special uh, yeah, it's, it's, it lived up to its name the glamour's there so it's, it's exciting to be here I mean you know Giles is, Giles is off making films around the world doesn't get more glamorous than that does it yeah I suppose so it doesn't feel very glamorous right now <laughs> under this blankie that's for sure but that's it. No, no, I know what you mean. It's that, it is that weird feeling. You've been spending so long on it. I remember Dom telling me about this film and you, and you came to some make your film events as well that we were doing saying, I want to make my film and uh, you're being inspired by some of our guests. And that was really, really interesting for me as well. And the fact that now you've, you've done it was super, super exciting. What about you, Octavia? How did you meet, how did you get involved in the sort of whole you know, when the screaming starts. I was really lucky to actually be at the very first read-through. That was when the script was very different. It was Ed Hartland's first draft. Mm. And I just loved the concept. And then, of course, Connor came on and started working with Ed. And it, it did change a lot. But I, I wanted to be involved in it as soon as I was part of that first reading. And I was really lucky to know most people actually for, for several years from a theatre company that we all worked with together. And we've since then been making films together, theatre shows, all sorts of different things. And it was great to be able to work with friends on a project that as a collective, there was just a real passion for. Yeah. And, and it does show, you know, you could see that because you didn't film it all in one go either, did you? It wasn't like, oh, here's when we're filming. You did it in sections, in blocks. Is that right? Yeah, which which actually does, I think, benefit the project because, mm. you know, the, the main sort of bulk was shot and then obviously COVID happened and there was this huge gap. But then it did allow, you know, I mean, I think Connor and the, you know, the team just really like amended the front end of the film uh, and it is a lot more tight and it's actually a lot more ambitious because there's all these interesting like character intros um, in all these different places so it allowed some real rethinking of of the story and making it tighter and better uh, actually having it shooting in in chunks and if you can deal with the sort of the stress of waiting and you know, people's beard hair levels and you know <laughs> all those kind of logistics of, of getting someone back after a while sometimes it can work very much in your favour. Mm. No, I agree. I think having that time away sometimes makes a big difference, you know. Was it a problem for your beard, Octavia, or was it just the other cast members? <laughs> it was a real problem for my beard. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to shave again, but they, they told me for continuity, I had to. Amazing, amazing. Let's tell, let's tell our lovely listeners uh, what the film is about. We'll play the trailer and then we'll dive deeper into it. Uh, who would be best uh, to tell our lovely listeners? what the film is. When the Screaming Starts is a mockumentary about an aspiring serial killer and the documentary filmmaker following him on his blood-soaked quest for infamy. Good evening. Tonight's main story, a series of brutal murders that have shocked the nation. My name's Aidan Mendel and I'm a serial killer. What are you doing? Aspiring serial killer. 
I'm Norman Graysmith, a documentary filmmaker, and when I stumbled upon Aidan Mendel, <laughs> I knew I'd found the subject for my next story. We're gonna start a family. Wow. Like Charles Manson. The idea of being the head of a cult, that's always appealed to me. Why do you want to join our family? Murder, drugs, sex. Mano, madame, bari yoga. I here to learn. Then you've come to the right place, my friend. Welcome to the Mendel Family Boot Camp. This is Weapons Training 101. Plan is for our family to find a home to attack. Home invasion. Tonight's the night we commit our first murders. Why aren't you coming with us? Well, I'll be coordinating things from here. Tonight was the beginning of my serial killer career. You're not a serial killer. I bloody am. You're not. You haven't killed anyone. I'm going to finish this documentary with a real killer. Looks like you're going to get to see me kill someone after all. What was the inspiration, Connor, to, to make this? You know, what, why a mockumentary? Why following a serial killer? Where did it come from? Was it Ed's? Did, did you, you know, did you collaborate that way you know, on the story? Talk us through this as your first feature and why you wanted to make this film. So as Octavia alluded to earlier, we've, as a collective, we've been working together for a long time, made lots of different projects. We've been trying to get a feature made for a long time, you know, mm. hence I did Dom's course many moons ago, make filmmaker events, filmmakers podcast. I'm always trying to just learn how to take that first step and make your first feature. We had some scripts and we needed bigger budgets and we were shopping them around as you do, but obviously we're sort of unknown entities in that capacity in the industry. So wasn't having much joy. And then Ed approached me with this concept. And I mean, the heart of it was all there, what you see today. It's a very different um, film from the initial, uh, yeah, Ed Hartland, uh, very, very different from the initial outline, but the heart of it was there and the mockumentary aspect just made it seem achievable. And I know that can be a cop-out with mockumentaries. I think that's why we get apparently loads of bad ones. I mean, I haven't seen so many, but I'm always hearing everyone say, ooh, mockumentary, tough genre, lots of shit in the mockumentary space. And you're like, I think that's because it attracts people with no money and just a bit of ambition. So yeah, the long and short of it is it felt achievable with our friends around us. At one point, I was even gonna shoot if I had to. You know, I'm, I'm by no means a, a cinematographer, but I can, I can shoot. And um, thankfully, thankfully I didn't have to shoot. We got a great DP, Adrian Musto on board, but um, it just felt achievable for us with limited resources and money. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting and, and quite valuable for most filmmakers out there. What can you make on the budget you have? And the fact that Ed came to you with this idea and mockumentary, you know, done well, they're very good. And this one is stunning. So, you know, I saw it at Fright Fest and I really, really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was just so well done. Knowing what, you know, you were making it for and how you made it. I was like, yeah, this is, this is a filmmaker who really is thinking about what he wants to do with this and a team behind it. And I was very impressed. And I think, you know, you should definitely be applauded for that. 
and and you definitely should be making more films moving forward. There's no question about it. I suppose what would be really interesting for our listeners, and this is, I love this bit, is how you actually go from going, hey, I want to make a film, to actually doing it. Because it's that step that so many people get stuck on. It's that, you know, we can all say, hey, you know, there's so many people come up to us at Christmas or when you go home and go, I've got an idea for a film. And you go, you know, that's not a bad idea, but how do we actually achieve that? So going from an idea, which so many people have, to actually delivering a finished movie. Yeah, let's talk about that and how you went, first of all, the first step, which was how the hell are we going to actually do this? Food was the food was the first port of call. Food for dogs, because, right? Because, yeah. You know, and it's it's, <laughs> Wait, but it's, it's a valid thing to do. Like if you if you want someone you know who's who's done a film and you haven't done a film and you want them to yeah. you know, really give them your time and whatever, it's a really good idea. You know, just take them out for lunch or a coffee or you know, cake or or whatever. Cake for Dom. And you know, the the thing is, it's a very important lesson about how to get a producer because. The thing is, like, if you really desperately want a producer, going to that producer and saying, will you be my producer, doesn't really work most of the time because generally producers have a full slate of films and they're busy. And also it's a bit of a you know commitment to sort of dive straight into something that's not necessarily formed or, or even, you know, much, much behind it. But in, in this case, you know, it started off as advice. And, you know, you by giving advice in a time frame that you can afford as a producer, you you sort of talk through, OK, what can you do? OK. And then and then, you know, you start having more confidence in the project and you start connecting your team. And, and um, you know, Lucinda was recommended to you know, get involved in the line uh, budget side of things. So you start offering up, you know, your connections and then it sort of happens organically. But, you know, a producer kind of has to choose to do a project really you, you it's not it doesn't really work that if you just desperately want a producer and you ask them then they'll be like oh yeah I'll, I'll do that it happens the other way around i i think and it, and it happens by them just being invested in what you're doing so for me that that was kind of how the involvement happened and it just sort of you know i, I suddenly looked around and was like oh i am kind of producing this you know or helping produce this i think that's i think that's right and really interesting is is like you said, going to someone and saying, hey, can you produce my movie because they'd made movies before is those people are busy and they know that to produce your movie, that means they've got to do a shit ton of work and it might not be any good. So they've really got to believe in you as a person. Um, they've really got to say, oh, why do I want to do this and spend maybe a year, two years of my life trying to get this film made? And if it's no good, it's my name attached to it. It does a lot. And people just expect I, I found certainly when I was starting, I was like, why aren't producers wanting to do my amazing script and work with me? I'm amazing. And the truth is, because there's so many films that they're trying to get off the ground, what makes your special or what makes you special? And I think that was a relationship you two had by the sounds of it straight away was like, you know, you liked Connor, you know, from, you know, and it was like, OK, how do we, <laughs> how do we, <laughs> Dom shaking his head. I think it was the Korean chicken that got him really. <laughs> it's food. Like I say, with Dom, if you want Dom to produce a movie, take him out for a nice meal. He arrives hungry. He arrives very hungry. So just, just bear that in mind. Yeah. You arrive hungry for creating and making work. Dom arrives hungry for food. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got that, now you're in that wonderful place. You know, you, you're starting to build your team, but still there's that moment of, how do you still get it made? You know, you still got to raise the money. Uh, Octavia, were you involved at this stage? Are you part of the, the team at this juncture? I was involved earlier, not, not right from the very, very beginning. But I think what is quite unique about this film and the process was 
a lot of people's first feature films have small casts mm. but actually this is quite a large cast but i think the quality of the writing was a real asset because so many of the characters were unique and really appealing and they had a lot to stick their teeth into so i think a lot of actors wanted to be involved because of how great the characters were really and that actually assembled a team quite quite quickly and obviously we had the advantage of having a lot of friends who were actors and some of the parts were really tailored towards them and I think it just grew really gradually so at first Connor you can speak more on this but originally it was just a teaser right right and then the teaser merged into the film organically maybe you can speak on that yeah, so we had an idea of doing a um, a Kickstarter campaign or an Indiegogo, I think it was, where we were going to shoot a sort of, well, we say a teaser, but essentially we were trying to shoot whole scenes from the film so we didn't have to then go back and reshoot. You know, every, every day costs money. Mm. So that was the initial plan. We shot the teaser and we realized actually we made a lot of mistakes here. Certain character choices, certain costume. It was just, it was great, actually. I recommend anyone, if you get the opportunity to do that, because... We got to try some stuff out and, and learn what was good and what wasn't about about the styles, the project, the cinematography, everything, the writing. So initially, it was one of those things where it just snowballed. I think if we would have started out knowing the final budget, how much time, how much energy it was going to take, we may have never taken that first step. It's because it happened slowly. Mm -hmm. It was like, we can do it for this amount. It's like, okay, cool. We can afford that. We can self-fund it. And then it was like, okay, but if we want to shoot on this camera, we can do that, but it's going to need a first AC. It's going to need these other crew members to support that. More lights. It's going to cost more money. And it just sort of leveled up every step of the way, which took a lot of... Um, faith i think it was quite stressful for myself dom and the rest of the team it was always like where's the next bit of money coming from but as octavia said the team rallied behind i mean this this film was funded by the majority of the people you see on screen you know our friends the actors all chipped in they put money into the film i mean it's the opposite of of your average film you know the actors are are invested truly we hope the film's going to go on to make money and they're all going to get paid for their time but it, I think it's just a testament to the project and everyone's passion. You know, everyone did it for the right reasons on this film. No one was there for the sake of it. Everyone believed in it. Everyone had something to gain personally and everyone believed in the film as a whole. So yeah, it was, it was a great experience. It's a good point about the sort of the, you know, shooting it bit by bit and then seeming insurmountable because a lot of the time you do kind of, I mean, the sort of the general thought is you should just raise all your money um, you know, the Americans are like, well, just ask for the amount that you need, which is which is great if you've got a pool of investors. Of course. But if you haven't and you are trying to DIY it, it can seem too impossible if you were, you know, say if we'd you know, budgeted this for what it actually was at the start, it would have just seemed so impossible that we wouldn't have done it, you know, as Connor said. So a lot of the time you just have to sort of, it's actually taking the step to start it that is the creation of it. Uh, and the other stuff falls into play uh, by taking that action. Yeah, we had um, a window of opportunity, which was the, the DP, Adrian Muster, was free in January. He's this guy. He's done all our short films. He's had this amazing career. He's gone from strength to strength. And he has all his own equipment and camera. And we basically just like needed Adrian to come on board this project. And he said, cool, I've got a window in January. Can you make that happen? And we were nowhere near ready to go, but we just thought, that's it. It's got to be January. Mm. and 
it gave us the rocket fuel we needed. Well, sometimes that's a really good thing because you setting a date for me, I think is one of the most important things you can do as a filmmaker. You set a date and then you're telling people this is when you're filming. And like you say with the DP, they go, well, this is my date this is when we're filming, it moves things along so much. It's like, oh God, that's when we're doing it. And you suddenly get this weird feeling of, oh, is this really going to happen? Oh my God, we're actually doing this. But it really does move the needle. When you put a date on it, it becomes real. People are available. Hey, are you available these days? Great. All right. This is when we're filming. It's real. It's a real thing. And you're shooting the script. And that's fascinating. I think it, it can be amazing just to put a date on it or someone's an actor's availability who you really want or a DP's availability. You need to make the, the film happen. And then it moves forward. Okay, so I suppose jump back a little bit in terms of the, the script stage and getting that right. As you as a director, Connor, and also coming on as a writer, and Ed brought you the script. And what did you bring as the director to that script? Because from my side, I always want to put my slant on it as a director. Okay, that's the script, but here's why I think it needs tweaking or working. How did you work that and how did you work together with Ed? I think it was a similar process to Dom coming on board as a, as a producer. It started out as just uh, notes, going to a read through of the initial draft. And I think we ended up working on this thing for about nine months together. I can't remember exactly how long, but it got to a point where it was just like, the, as I said, the heart of it's always remained, the core, the moments you see starting a family, all that stuff was there, but the ending was very different. The characters were very different, the dialogue. We sort of, we sort of tore it down and rebuilt it from the ground up, which was really fun. Cause you know, I had that permission with Ed. We're longtime friends, longtime mm. collaborators. So, it, and, and that just, for me, I, I've heard you talk about this, Giles. It's so much more fun for me to write with someone else yeah. and just to hear the dialogue out loud, especially with a comedy and we're making each other laugh and we're just mm. riffing, you know? It was a really enjoyable experience. And um, yeah, I, th I think that comes from a, a place of having a lot of trust with each other and knowing it's not about ego, you know, it's just about making the project the best it can be. Love that. It's so true. I, that's why I love writing with other people. Uh, and especially when you're writing comedy with other people, if you're making each other laugh with a line, that feels great. It's super. And it's like, right, how do we weave this in? Or, and then they might improve on your line and then it becomes a joint line or, you know, you, there's obviously times when you disagree, but you work through it. You go, okay, well, look, I'll give you that. And you give me this one, or I'm stuck on this scene, write it, finish that. Uh, they're stuck on this scene, finish that. And suddenly you've got a script that it's not just your voice and you're chucking it out into the wind and hoping people like it. And sometimes people are very wary of saying to a screenwriter, oh, yeah, it still needs more work. That doesn't get you anywhere. Whereas if you're working with someone else, you can both get to a much better stage much quickly. So I totally hear you on that. I, I love writing with other people. I think it's, I, I'm amazed at those people who can write solo. I really am. I'm like, wow, <laughs> how do you deal with your own worries and fears and frustrations of writing a bad script or thinking, you know, because that's what we do as filmmakers, screenwriters. We think, oh God, it's not good enough all the time. So to have someone else sort of supporting you, I think is incredible. Having that team around you is great. Hey guys and gals, Giles here jumping in to tell you about Q scripts. Well, they're a script analysis service who provide detailed, constructive and professional reports on shorts, features and TV scripts. They work with both emerging talent aiming for a break in the industry as well as established writers looking to take their scripts and ideas to the next level. They have experienced readers with a track record at honing scripts into the best and most appealing version for production companies and other partners. And because you listen to the Filmmakers Podcast, you get three months membership for free for a limited time. So get there now. 
QScripts.com. Link is in the show notes. Easy. <laughs> QScripts.com. Check them out. Yeah, and I noticed that, you know, a lot of you are exec producers and producers on the film, and I love the fact that you all, you know, set out to make this together as a team. And it shows, it really does. So the premiere and stuff at Fright Fest, you're all there together. You're all felt like a, an amazing team. And I, I really like that. And I think you have to hang on to those people who you like, who supported you for that. And you just bring them to the next one, hopefully, if they've not gone off to do big Netflix shows or whatever. You just, you do, you know. Yeah, so you, so now the script's in a really good stage. So you've brought your team on. You're all supporting each other by, you know, raising the money together, if you like. Just to be really interesting to know, how much did you think you could originally make When the Screaming Starts for, Connor? Well, again, it was a very different version of When the Screaming Starts, but originally we thought it would be about, we could do it for 15 grand, I think was yeah. the rough ballpark figure. That was if I was shooting it myself. That's Isn't that incredible, isn't it? When you go, you can go do it for that. And now looking back, are you glad that that didn't happen that way? I am glad. I mean, my bank balance isn't. Um, <laughs> did, <laughs> did, it did wipe me out, I'm not going to lie. Um, but not in a s stupid way, you know. We weren't remortgaging a house, mostly mm. because I don't have a house to remortgage. <laughs> but if you did, you would If I did, maybe I wouldn't have. <laughs> wouldn't recommend that. Yeah, I know I know people who have done that, and yes, yeah, fair play to them. But, um, you know, it was money I was willing to lose. That's the thing, right? And this is what you've got to think about investors. And it's the same thing when you reach out to investors. If they're willing to lose that money, you only have something to gain. And like you say, you were willing to lose that money and okay, your bank balance might be hit by it. But what you've gained is an incredible film that you can be proud of for life, you know? Uh, yeah. The, the, the weird thing was, was initially it was hard to get anyone to invest because it, it was just like, oh, you guys are making some crazy film about a serial killer. And it was like, we were sort of creating these pitch decks to demonstrate to people how we were going to get the money back and mm -hmm. really trying to sell it, but always, you know, saying, guys, this is a risky proposal. You could lose your money. We we're always very open and honest about yeah, that. But then to, this, yeah. this strange thing happened like partway through the project where people just started coming to us and they wanted to invest. We were like, hey guys, no, we don't want your money. <laughs> Stop it. You didn't. <laughs> yeah, that happened at one point. And um, really? that was surreal. But, but And you have to sense which people are thinking it's you know a money-making endeavor and which people are, are doing it to support you and, and just making sure you have those conversations and you're open and honest about it. So I would always say, guys, if you invest, you might lose your, your thousand pounds, your 500 quid, whatever it was, you know? And I think as long as you have that conversation early doors, then everyone knows what they're in for, you know? Yeah. And I think it's, it's actually really important to do that. Don't lie to investors because certainly they'll never invest again in you or any other filmmaker. Mm. But also the truth of it is you might, lose all your money and you have I think the more honest you can be investors appreciate that that if they're investors and they have money they understand how money works they're not stupid they're not you know uh, people who've never done this before they have so by being honest and and literally with your contracts saying that be prepared to lose all this money and you can send a separate it's like a mini contract a high net worth individual piece of paper to say you are this is all your money and you're willing to lose it separately to the contract it, it does make a difference because they go yeah i'm willing to take that risk on you as the filmmaker and that's when you're winning because now they're going okay well i might lose all my money but do you know what it was worth the ride you know there were cool people and hey if it does well it's a bonus for me that's where you need to be with investors rather than thinking, oh gosh, I'm going to make a load of money from this film. That doesn't get you anywhere. And it's just, you've got a yeah, constantly uphill battle. Now, what about the filming side of things? All three of you really, 
you know, what was that process like of going, organizing it all, setting it up, knowing when you were filming, what was happening? Because that side of it, it's not easy. It's not like, oh, we've got the money, we've got a script, we've got the actors, let's go shoot. It's so much has to go into the production side of it, the management, how you get stuff going. Octavia, were you involved heavily at this point? Were you kind of working out what's what and getting things moving? I I was helping where, wherever I could. Mm. And I think, I think what was constantly surprising was how much you have to do last minute and how much you have to sort of just be responsive because so often you can't do one thing until another thing has been put into place. Mm. And so it's, the sheer level of cooperation and coordination that Connor, Jared and Ed particularly executed was phenomenal to, to watch and to be a part of, but mainly just to see what they could put off, pull off in a short space of time. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? I think, how were you feeling during that time, Connor? And, you know, because you've, you've got a lot on your plate, you're spinning a lot of things and you're putting your own money in. How were you coping, I suppose, mentally, you know, as well as actually physically and doing the deed as well? What was your, what was your process like in your head? You know, it, I think it was just taking it one day at a time. And, you know, when you start to think of everything that's in front of you to do, you know, especially when it comes to shooting, you, you can be overwhelming. You know, you're shooting one scene. And again, I've heard you talk about this, Giles, and the location's falling through for the next day or the actors pulled out. Or you're getting a call from their agent. And we didn't initially especially have the infrastructure really to deal with it because the team was so small. Like, again, like Dom, for example, came to our aid, uh, uh, you know, a few days into the shoot and was like, thank God we got someone else now who can maybe take this call. Mm. Um, Lucinda came and helped as well, Lucinda Rhodes-Tacra. But initially it was quite overwhelming and it's the small things that trip you up, I think. The directing wasn't the most challenging, you know, it was... It was like um, props, for example. We had to load up the van every morning with every prop. And it wasn't just loading. It was like going through and double checking. Have we got that person's costume? Have we got the double of their costume in case they get blood on it? Have we got the food? How are we going to pick everyone up from the stations? Like a story we've told before is how Jared Rogers, one of the producers, and he also plays Norman, he basically used that camper van to shuttle everyone around, like all the cast and crew. <laughs> really? That's in the movie. <laughs> he would pick up, you know, cast members that I've never met him before, dressed fully as Norman in this camper van. And just like, I think that's just demonstrating how, how many roles we all had to take on. But, you know, everyone was there. The actors weren't just there to act. Like when they were on set, they knew what time it was. They would they would help out while they were waiting, you know, obviously once we got on set and they had to do their thing, try to keep them as actors, you know, I didn't want them worrying about mm. logistics or, or production or anything like that. But again, just having that tight network around you, just like you, you figure it out and you, you find solutions. And some of those solutions actually led to more discoveries we wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm. But it can be frightening in that stage you know if you haven't got a dom with you all the time and another dom and another dom because you need all those it can be overwhelming it can be really you know was it what was was the tough days and how did you overcome them when it really things did shit hit did hit the fan yeah there were certainly tough days for me i mean 
I think that's the case for any film, like at any yeah. level, you know. There's, there's, there's always going to be those days where you go, what have I done here? I mean, there was one day in particular where it just all went wrong. I can't say too much because it's a bit of a spoiler, but it just like everything went wrong. The practical effects didn't work. The acting wasn't quite where it was. Everyone was exhausted. And you just power through, you know, you just, you, you make it work. You find a solution where, you know, okay, we wanted the fork in the hand, mm -hmm. but now it's going to be something else because the fork's not standing up or whatever it may be. Very Unfortunate. Unfortunate indeed. Yes, yeah, so I, I as long as you adapt, if you go in with a vision, like we all like to think we're, you know, whoever, Spielberg, Tarantino, we've got these clear visions, but I think you just always have to be malleable and adapt to what's thrown your way each and every day, you know? And the truth is as well, just, you know, full transparency here, we reshot some stuff. You know, we reshot some stuff because we didn't like it and we rushed it on the day and we thought, cool, we've got to move this along maybe get rid of that scene that's not so important and let's, let's have another stab at this. That's, that's really interesting. And what you said there about getting through it, I think is, because we do have these lofty ambitions, there's no question about it. We do think, right, I'm going to do a Spielberg shot here. So oh, Master Warner, we're going to come around. And then you get to set and there's no chance you can do any of that because for one, no one can move in the tiny room you've got. The, the steady cam doesn't work or it didn't arrive or you couldn't afford it or the, the track doesn't fit. All these things happen. And it doesn't matter how much planning you do, stuff goes wrong. So the fact that you were able to adapt. And I think what's really important here is because it was your film, you could watch it back, look at the edit and go, not happy, going to reshoot this. And it's hard to do that because you've got to get everyone back, you've got to find the costumes, and don't forget you've got to store all those costumes and store all those props. Someone's got to look after them and people forget all this stuff. Where did, where do you keep them? It's a lot of stuff. Was, was there anything you learned from that, you know, moving forward to your next film that you'd want to do differently? I think knowing when to veer away from your plan is a skill that you have to develop. The, I won't give any spoilers away, but there was a very, very ambitious day uh, at the Kitsons, the Kitson scene. Mm -hmm. And we were planning to shoot that whole sequence in the Kitson house all in, all in one day. Wow. Wow. And we got all, it was incredibly ambitious. Uh -huh. And we got almost all of it done apart from the sequence in the corridor. And I kind of made the call to step away and he said we'll come back and we'll do this again and at the time it felt like no we can do this we can push through we can push through but actually knowing when no this is enough we have to take time give it space and give everyone a break is a skill that has to be developed and to be realistic about your capacity and adapt in the moment is really something that i took away from the shoot in general yeah, that's huge. Yeah, adapting the moment is is so important. Don't get too stuck in your ways with, oh, we have to, we have to. It's like, well, maybe you don't. Because at the end of the day, it does matter what's on screen. That's Everything else is just fluff. You forget half the shit that happened. At the time, it's the most important thing that a certain prop wasn't there or you couldn't get to a certain train station on time. But actually, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It's what's on screen. It doesn't matter about your favourite shots, your worst shots. As long as the story works... 
is all it actually is all that matters. Yeah, because there, there are there are times when you know, as Oki says, that there's times when you know there's a location and there's no way that you're getting the actor back or the location. Like there's just there's zero chance, and, and you know that. And those are the days where you do have to push through. But there's other ones where you're just when you're just sort of running things through for the sake of it because mm. oh we should get it or you know it's in it's in the schedule. There comes a point when people aren't productive anymore. And then you're also like depriving people of so much sleep that they won't be productive the next day. And it's all like this this whole idea of like, don't sleep, just get it done, like actually is really counterintuitive, I think, to good work. Mm. Well, if you're too tired to do it, it can be very, suddenly you think you're doing it and actually everyone's way too tired and mistakes happen. And that's where things can really go wrong. Um, Connor, your side in terms of what you've learnt as a director and a producer and a writer? I mean, we were in a privileged position this time around because we could kind of make up our own rules. And I fully appreciate, like, if you're working for a studio, you may not just be able to say, okay, well, we'll come back and and do that. Um, I think what we did was we had some contingency days in our schedule, which of course we use them like but they were just spare days where we thought okay we can come back and do that extra little scene here or extra little cutaway shot there so that was really useful and i'll just say really focus on the script like it all comes down to the script any i'd say 90 percent of issues that we ended up having to do any reshoots or rework stuff it, it was because the script in that moment wasn't as good as it could have been you know you'll figure a way out in production to make it work and you'll get something but you can't make a bad part of dialogue good or a bad scene you know and the scenes that we knew we were under so much pressure and we thought this scene's not so good but we've been so busy focusing on everything else we hadn't had time to come back to it and rework mm. it and we'd be there on the day going like let's cut that let's change that the actors would, would get involved and just spend as much time getting the script right as you can is what I would say I like that in terms of your storyboarding in terms of your ideas in terms of your shot lists how did you set that up then from you know from the off and of course that changed and of course things you had to adapt but talk us through working with uh, adrian uh, musto your dp you know like you mentioned before about you'd have a decks you know you'd prepare these decks so talk us through your color palettes or your your shot choices anything like that that you originally wanted to get with this film especially being a mockumentary how do you portray that and, and what was your thought process well i think when people think mockumentary they always think like drab like the office and stuff like mm-hmm. that which is amazing because it creates this really uber realistic style and, and it helps you to, to immerse yourself in the world but i always wanted to infuse this with a bit more of a cinematic kind of flair, you know, have the score, have sound design, have color palettes, the cinematography and production design. You know, like what we do in the shadows is, is a good example. Yes. I'm not saying ours is, is on that level, but it just has that extra bit of flair. I'd say it was, yeah. So that was the kind of aesthetic we were going for. Um, we tried to infuse colors where we could to give it this sort of vibrant feel. Every all the main family have their own color. So that just, mm. I'll tell you what, the, the best thing about that choice was just that it made it so much easier because we were costume department. So we were like, cool, well, we know we need navy blue for Jack. We know we need pink for Claire. We know we need black for Amy. It was just, it helped narrow our choices, which mm. actually when you're that busy becomes a real a real blessing. Yeah, so um, Adrian Musto, he, he's come from a background of making documentaries. So he's so well-versed in that environment. So for me, it was a case of working with Adrian. Obviously we had our discussions before, we had ideas of shots and whatnot, but it was quite uh, fluid on the set. You know, Adrian had to kind of feel what was going on 
with the scene and respond, you know, the little punching moments. And a lot of the time we'd figure it out as we went, you know, first take, we were just figuring stuff out. We'd get a bit of coverage. Next time it's, I'm getting more specific. Okay, that moment's where you're gonna punch in because that's the, the comic line, that's the punchline. So it was, it, was, it was a fluid process. And I mean, I loved shooting in this style because it was freeing in a way. And I, I don't think you have that with traditional cinematography. You know, a mockumentary just opens up so many possibilities. We tried to honor the mockumentary style and, and the real, you know, the realism of like, where's the camera guy gonna be at each given point? But at a certain point as well, we looked at all these other documentaries, sorry, mockumentaries, and we, we said, you know what? That's not the most important thing here. Let's not get caught up in being so realistic. Like, how did the cameraman get that? How did he know that was gonna happen? We just thought, story is the king here. Let's give it the mockumentary aesthetic, infuse it with some stylized flair, and just have fun with it, you know? It's, it's a comedy, it's, it's a dark comedy, so, I think we have the creative license to just have fun with it and you know we're not taking ourselves too seriously. Yeah, and if people if people are engaged then they will always forget and forgive moments that don't make sense or intuitive leaps. But if they're not sort of in with the characters and they're not sort of believing the actual people then you, that's when people start to notice those mistakes. Yeah, very true. So you you know you could Ed came to you with the idea, you started working on it, you raised the money, you brought the team together, you started shooting it. It's incredible. How now do you get the thing edited and how do you get it out there to everyone who's now about to watch this this really cool movie? What was the process there? I know, Dom, you're very heavily involved in the post-production side of things. How did you go from, right, we've got an edit here, starting to do festivals, and then we want to release it. I know you had a specific plan, but it'd be really nice for our audience to to hear that and to say, would that work for them? I mean, it kind of started with Connor and Alan, uh, who was working remotely in, in, in New York. Sorry, wait, who's, who's, who's Alan? So Alan's the editor. So I think a lot of that, that process was really important in terms of shaping it and... You know, there were there were early screenings where I, I watched the um, you know the full film and I sort mm -hmm. of gave notes and and other people gave notes and and that was taken on board, and I think that that was the main thing before the pickups was was that re-edit of the, of the start and the reshoots and and how we can sort of get the the pace um, really working in that front end, and also sort of increasing production values as well because there were sort of backstories in Europe and you know it sort of gave it a, a real edge and then you know it came down to finding people that were going to work for low budget and mm -hmm. do it willingly um, and, and do a good job and not sort of cut you know cut corners um, so the, the post house was a, was a good place that I'd worked with before and they did us like a really good deal so we, we were able to sort of get the um, deliverables and the the grade done there and then it came down to finding a good sound designer and a good composer that would do it for the right the right money as well but we're also sort of a small enough a small enough outfit where they didn't have massive overheads with studios but also were working at the top level of their craft as well which is a really hard balance to get another thing that was that was really good was uh, I'd worked with a VFX titleist before um, and, and that was something that was really amazing for putting together the real identity of the characters because each of the characters are so unique and interesting and original um, that that front end sequence really sort of gets to introduce you to them uh, in, in quite a cool sort of way. So, um, I mean, it's just kind of putting people together really and, and assembling a team that can work together. But it all started with the edit really and, and what Alan and, and sort of Connor were 
making into a good story with the rest of the, the sort of core team. Nice. And your festival strategy then, because obviously you wanted to go into festivals first, was that a conscious decision to go, this is how we think we will get more interest from distribution? Was that your thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think Con- Connor and, 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 you know, Jared and Ed and and there was always a, a we want to premiere a bigger festival. That was kind of always, you know, the idea. I sort of looked at this and I, and I think, well, it is a smaller film, so it can be very genre successful. So that probably is a very good way to do it. And, you know, you go somewhere like Fright Fest and you might just get picked up. So I think in the back of everyone's mind, it was always part of the idea was, you know, let's let's try and put some of our eggs in the basket of going to a major festival and see if that leads to, you know, a good distribution deal. And I, and I think that is kind of how how we kind of built it around and we got a good press off that and we got good referral just from that one festival we got recommendation into the um irish film institute uh, festival we played there and then uh, you know i think we had a, a couple in america and one of them was uh, you know recommendation from fright fest um, and we went up north as well mm. so you, you you do well in one really well connected festival and it can lead to a whole bunch of others and then you can meet distributors and sales agents um, at those kind of level of genre festivals um, so it, it is, it's a good way if you don't have like major sort of cast to, to find an avenue to getting your film out there. Mm. Yeah. How was that for you, Octavia, you know, being massively part of this now suddenly going around the festival circuits with the film and feeling that joy of the audience reaction to this film, which was pretty incredible. I've got to say that first time that you see the film in front of an audience who haven't been involved in the film yes for us was on this sunday of fright fest because we sold out the premiere and there was a lot of friends and family there but on we had an, we had another screening we actually had three screenings at fright fest and there was one screening where it was almost entirely fright fest goers and seeing the film in front of an audience who have no hand in the film whatsoever was such an incredible experience and and was my, I actually enjoyed it more than the first time we saw it because you just get that real feedback. Mm. And that is just not only a sigh of relief, but a really amazing feeling of, oh, I love that bit. And they found that bit really funny. Oh, I wasn't sure if we should keep that bit in. I actually said maybe we should cut it. And they loved it. I was wrong on that. And just that feedback was fascinating. And I think it was a brilliant experience going to the different festivals as well. We really enjoyed Grimfest as well up north. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of from your side then, because now this, this is the time, you know, you're getting great feedback, but now you're thinking about, okay, well, who's going to sell the movie? Who's going to distribute it? Where are we going to put it? What was the process for you of that? Because it's a really important step and it's difficult to know who to go with, who's lying, who's saying the right things. How did you deal with it? Up until this point, I'd felt like I have some experience, you know, making films, short films, other things over the years. It's like, it's the same to an extent. It's just over a much longer period and and whatnot. But distribution is something I've just never had any experience with at all. The only experience I have is listening to you guys on this podcast and a few others, you know, just trying to learn from as many people as I can. And all you hear is, you know, a lot of a lot of negativity because it's true. It's like there's a lot of sharks out there. There are distributors that rip filmmakers off, and it's a very tough part of the industry 
at the moment. So, I mean, I went in, like I'd done my homework as much as I possibly could. We got a really, I think, a really good trailer mm-hmm. cut together. You know, we, we, we forked out for that because I felt like the trailer and the poster are what people use to sell a film. So if we want to entice people to take this film on, we've got to present it in the best way possible. Because that's the most thing people will watch is the trailer. You know, that's the first thing they'll see, the trailer and the poster. Probably the poster first, and they go, okay, it could be for me, then the trailer. If it's not a good trailer, if it's cut together badly, if it looks cheap, it's over, the sound's crap. It doesn't matter what your film's like because they're not going to watch it. It's really important. So yeah, well done there on that part. It's an art form. It is. It's a very different set of skills to make a good trailer than it is normal editing. It, it's it's completely unique. The specific companies who just do it, you know, it, it, not everyone can do trailers. It's, you know, even the best editors, they go, well, I like this shot, but actually that doesn't work in a trailer because it's about telling the story of that trailer and throwing in shots that don't even make sense. And we as filmmakers get too precious about that. And that's why it's better for an outside eye. Sorry, Connor, Carol. Yeah, that was one of those moments where it was like, I forget who said it, it might have been Octavio, it was like, or Dom, it was just like, do we go Hollywood or do we skimp? And it was like, Hollywood. let's go Hollywood, baby. I feel like that's something I might have said. Yeah, that sounds like something Dom might have said, yeah. yeah but- <laughs> we did, We again, it was like, oh my God, we had to dig deep to get that thing. You know, we got a very good deal, but still it was out of our budget, but we thought this has to be priority. And I think mm. that was a, a good decision. We got a pitch deck together and we put our reviews on there, which were really helpful. Again, that came off the back of playing at uh, festivals like Fright Fest. We paid for a little bit of PR as well. We didn't have a big budget at all, but we got a great team on board. I think they were called Strike Media. And um, yeah, yeah, we we got the word out there. We had loads of like, we got loads of four star reviews. So we plastered those all over the the pitch deck that we sent out. We put little quotes, anything that was really positive about the film and just had this presentation essentially. And then in the email, we obviously targeted everyone individually we tried to choose sales agents that were um, in line with our film. You know, some some aren't going to take on a horror comedy mockumentary. It's just you could tell from their slate of films. So yes. we were quite targeted. Dom actually had a connection, I believe, a loose connection with Double Dutch International, who we eventually signed with. So, mm. But you can write your cold emails if you don't have those connections. Do not fear that you cannot write to every sales agent, every distributor. Of course you can. But do your research and know who would be right for your film. Don't waste your time. Uh, there's a brilliant site called Indie TV. Yeah, it's is really really useful um we use that for three day millionaire and it means you can see if they've watched it or not it's very secure as well so you're not just sending out a vimeo link or a youtube link etc um so you got double dutch involved uh and then you got distribution as well and then you got signature in the uk and signature flying at the moment it's one of the the leading sales distribution companies in the uk again how did that come about again was it the same thing you guys sending your deck your trailer or did they come to a festival talk us through that yeah yeah, I mean, with with um, I mean, Signature came through. They came through Double Dutch, but you know, they're, they're as you said, they are one of the leading ones in the UK. So there, there are sort of you know limited options of who is good and will will cover the budget. You know, Lucinda had worked with them before, and so we knew that, and you had as well. So we knew that they they'd um, they'd done stuff, but we didn't sort of use particularly an in to to get them on board. They just liked the project. Um, and you know, in the, being the UK, we wanted someone decent to to take it over and to get it out there. Um, so it was it was kind of you know organic. I mean, with the, with the sort of general 
the general conversations you have when you sort of send out tentative emails as well. You get to know what companies won't look at you, you know, at all without certain things in place, which ones might. We had one company come to us and say, we would have liked this, um, but we, we tend to go with a company at the start of a festival run. So, so some of them, the festival run, they want it to have had a successful run. Some of them, they don't want you to have had a run yet before you join them. So you've always got to just sort of take into account where you're at in that journey. Yeah, no, you absolutely have. Octavia, you've, you know, for you and your journey on this has been, you know, one of the leads in this film and the experience of this. How, I suppose, you know, maybe you can put into words in some way how it feels now, you know, looking back, would you have changed anything, done anything different? And, you know, what what could be the process that would help you next time? In terms of, Next time, I think the biggest thing we've gained is the knowledge that we can do it. But I think the greatest challenge we have going forward is knowing what it takes. Yeah. So simultaneously, we have, you know, we've got the confidence now. If we put our mind to it, we, we can actually get the ball rolling and we can execute. But we also know how much work every single frame is and every every single line of a contract has to be read and thought about and discussed so so i think we've just learned a lot we've learned a lot about that it is not a race to the finish line and you've got to focus at every single step of the way and just take each day as it comes and and respond to the needs of the moment. But I think actually we're all really fired up now to just to just make more projects. Yeah, but you've got to love it because it's just, uh, yeah, as Octavia said, it's that's the awareness now is knowing it's that much work. I'm not just going to take on any old project now. You know, I've got to really pick and choose what are we passionate about because you're in it for the long haul. It's, you know, three years and we're still going. So mm -hmm. you better love what you're doing. Exactly what I said at the beginning of why people think other people should come onto their projects. Why should they? Because it's you're in it for the long haul. So if someone's joining you, it's because they believe in you and the project, but don't expect anyone to do it. And I think that's, that's huge once you're starting out. It's like... Yeah, you get frustrated by that, but you shouldn't because no one owes you anything. <laughs> no one owes you anything. Don, what have you learned? Not very much. No, I didn't <laughs> no. think so. No, I have. No, I, I've, <laughs> I, I think I've learned that, I've certainly learned the budget isn't actually relevant to good films. Mm. Uh, you know, I've worked on bigger budget stuff and I've worked on smaller budget stuff. And actually it does come down to the team and the quality of the idea and the execution. And I think this, although it's, not a huge, huge budget actually looks and feels like quite a decent caliber of film. But I mean, I guess overall it's, it's down to the people. It's it's having a good core team. I've always believed that. Like if you, you can't just have one person trying to battle it over the line. You've got to have a few people that are, that are sort of fighting that corner. And I think also, you know, if you can't shoot it, start shooting it and just, you know, do it sequentially like mm -hmm. we did and it, and it turned out really well don't do it for every film but it, it certainly works to get that first one made 
Absolutely. Uh, when the Screaming Starts is out now on all amazing streaming platforms, all good and evil ones. And I highly recommend you check out this film. This is how to do it. This is how to make an indie film and be successful in any way. Just the fact you're getting it released, the fact it's done well in festivals, the fact they've done this on their own, the fact that they've worked their butts off. It's taken three years, but look what they've achieved. That is something inspiring for every filmmaker out there. So that's why you should go watch this film and realize that you can do it too and it's a lot of work but you can do it amazing uh you guys are brilliant thank you for joining us this has been really really cool thank you giles for the pleasure absolute pleasure and you dom yeah and dom and dom oh you have socials by the way do you, do you want to shout out your socials on when the screaming starts and your own why not we haven't done that for a while direct dom lenoir dom lenoir on twitter instagram yeah etc. boring boring uh <laughs> where can people follow the film <laughs> on twitter it is at when screaming nice that's right and instagram it is when the screaming starts on facebook it's when the screaming starts there you go anyway to be honest you just search when the screaming starts it's around the links will be in the show notes anyway to where you can watch the film but it's on sky prime uh, apple uh, all the good places at uh, playstation with two king google play you know you can find it that's where you find your films if you want to watch it seek it out support indie film Octavia Gilmore thank you for your time thank you so much it's been great to have a chat with you all it's been amazing Connor Burrow you're a star thank you buddy thanks dude Dom Lenoir see you later <laughs> you can go out there and make your indie film you can make it happen believe in yourself and if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well it's your duty to send the elevator back down we will see you next Tuesday as always believe in yourself go make your film find the best people you can and go do it Take care, everyone. Bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs>The Filmmakers Podcast is kept going by your generous support. To hear some bonus content from today's episode and future content, subscribe to our Patreon. 